illness. Fabricated and induced illness by Dr. Rory Conn. By Dr. Rory Conn. It's an opportunity for us to, I guess, stimulate some discussion about this really complex area of paediatrics um, and maybe dispel a few myths along the way, perhaps, as well. Um, I do recognise a few of you, so um, for those I haven't met, I'm on paper a liaison psychiatrist working here in Exeter, so I should be spending the majority of my time in paediatrics, uh, but CAMS being as it is, I do get drawn over there quite a lot. But... The idea of my role is in part to join with, alongside paediatricians with complex cases uh, where there may be confusion about the cause of the problem or uh, concern about parental well-being and their influence over the child. So FII should be um, something that I'm very involved in. I'm going to start by asking though just briefly about your personal experiences. You're all towards the end of your training I think. Um, show of hands is probably the best way to do it. How many of you have been significantly involved, would you say, in an FII case? So more than half of you. Okay. Have any of you led on the management of an FII case? No, because it would sit with the box. Maybe a bit, James. But it mostly sits with... It was, no, it was an acute presentation. Yeah. Okay. Intoxication. Oh, right, okay. So, a poisoning, parent poisoning child. Wow, okay, that's quite unusual, isn't it? Um, but most of you have, have seen something that looks like this. Um, any of those cases went to, to court? That one makes sense. Maybe going to court. But that's not the usual outcome of these cases, is it? They usually either tend to sort of fizzle out a little bit or perhaps there's some sense that parents have changed in some way but they're often quite obscure as well as perplexing and they, they quite often don't end up with a satisfactory outcome frankly. Um, so we're going to think about what these presentations are but you can help me think about how do they arise, how do these things come about, what's going on? Parents Okay, so so not uncommonly there'll be a story around um, abuse or neglect in other generations within the family. That's really important to think about intergenerational factors. So there's often a mix of some natural pathology there. So there's been an interaction with health, okay. either professionally with the parent or through something happening with the child yeah. towards the beginning, which is kind of the start of Okay, that's really interesting. So it's a trigger kind of event. And we see that often with the medically unexplained symptoms generally, that there is a viral gastroenteritis or something that then resolve, leads to pain that doesn't resolve. So that's really important. Yeah, good point. Um, there's often to... quite a long lead-up to the suggestion of FII here. And it's quite hard to rule out. Do you mean until the medical team decide they're going to label it as such? Or even consider it, because it's difficult. Well, they may talk about it, but you, you certainly wouldn't go down that route until a certain point, because there needs to be quite a lot of investigation often. Okay. Um, and would it be fair to say it's often in the treating team's mind yeah. quite a long time before yeah. it's really it yeah. 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 Okay. I should say, have you all had teacher on FIR before? Okay. So some of this will be a bit repetitious, but it's good to refresh. 
But what? So Chloe's point was something about how you know the drivers for this is that are there any other drivers? What motivates um, these presentations? It's actually, again, preparing for the attentions. It's, they get something out of the attention that they get by being in a medical environment. Yeah. Paying lots of attention to them and their child. Okay. And so that must be a gain for them as well. Or it could be a financial gain. Yeah, it's got could, could be, but really rarely it's actually. Like, yeah. it's kind of, yeah, so and also, if there's a financial gain, then that's more like yeah. um, it's not. Um, what's it called? Malingering. Malingering. So malingering. <laughs> so, uh, yes, although malingering, you'd see more in the adult population in relation to their own health. So it tends not to be a, be applied to the paediatric population. The idea of malingering, because that's an act, a, a personal act. Uh, and whereas this, the, the proxy bit is something being done to someone else in some way. So some idea though about um, uh, an emotional driver, so unmet psychological need, usually in the mother, so it's nearly always the mum, but when dad is complicit, um, it tends to be that the mum has driven this and either dad has become kind of blindsided to it. Very rarely does this happen in families where there isn't a biological connection, so kind of fostering um, arrangements. Other things that I scribbled down in terms of, you know, how do you begin answering this question? So fulfillment of an unmet emotional need, and there might be a personality disorder, whatever that means in the, in the parent. Uh, usually that's a product of trauma and abuse, isn't it? Um, it's something about maintaining the closeness of the relationship between mother and child. So often these are quite enmeshed families, by which I mean you start to wonder whose symptoms are we really talking about and whose need is really being fulfilled by this. Um, these can be an expression of negativity towards the child. So if there was a story around actually, you know, you're kind of being aware this was an unwanted pregnancy and this has been a difficult child, um, or maybe they've got underdiagnosed um, ADHD and they're causing a lot of challenge at home, this is a method through which, consciously or otherwise, the parent can hand responsibility of this difficult child to someone else. Um, and I should say also, this is, this is very different from the, um, the many, many kids we see who present with medically unexplained symptoms, the unconscious motivation for which might be, for example, bringing the troubled parents to the attention of uh, professionals. So these are really complex processes and trying to work out what the driver is and whose motivation is, is is challenging. The financial material gain is much more rare and it's much more likely to involve active deception or what we might describe the use of hands. So there's a use of mouth and use of hands um, and the second is, is much more concerning, isn't it? You know, that's um, active, quite clear abuse to child. Very rarely comes to court but there have been occasions where cameras have been set up on paediatric wards and that sort of stuff as police investigations. Nearly always we're talking about use of mouth, um, erroneously reporting symptoms, that's the kind of thing to remember. And the use of hands is about interference, so that can also involve interference with reports, uh, investigations and documentation. When people talk about poisoning, that's the classic Munchausen's by proxy. That was the original um, description, was really poisoning. So you don't often see people talking about Munchausen's anymore, really, do you? Okay, so that's a kind of a bit of a background. So, yeah, 
So Munchausen was de described quite a long time back, and we've shifted several times. And one of the things, one of the reasons it's a very complex area is the terminological confusion, isn't it? So we now talk much more about fabricated or induced illness. And this is kind of a reference to the mouth and hands component. Um, but people more talking in paediatrics more talking about perplexing presentations now. Have you come across that? Come across the phrase now. Yeah, and that kind of, for me, that's more a capturing of, oh, is this MUS type of thing, because we don't have a medical explanation, could this be FII? So um, if people talk about perplexing presentations, I think that's quite good. Um, and it's also a term you can use with a family, I think, without necessarily setting up a sort of judgmental or argumentative process. This is really perplexing, isn't it? We're kind of confused by this. That's your way in, I think. Um, certainly in the UK we're moving towards earlier recognition, diagnosis and intervention <coughs> without the need necessarily for the proof of deception, which as I say is quite unusual. Um, whereas in the, P in, in the US, I know things get done differently, don't they? So they talk about paediatric condition falsification, caregiver fabri fabricated illness in a child. In, and in most of the ways in which they regard it, deception is implicit in what they're describing. So perplexing presentations and symptoms are, this is the main thing to remember, I suppose, at Banatag, is where there's a discrepancy between what is reported by the caregiver, so it's not always parents, is it, and what is observed clinically. Um, and that might not involve, as I said, failing or, or simulation. So clearly from the hands in the room, actually these aren't all that uncommon, or at least our suspicion of them is not that uncommon. Um, and this is from a quite a good paper, which I'm quite happy to circulate, but in large UK centres, and I would say that Exeter, for example, is getting on for one of those, there'll be maybe as many as 50 cases under investigation at any one time. And if you went and talked to all the paediatricians here in the hospital, I don't know, most of them would say, yeah, I've got two, two or three, you think? They might be talking to MASH about or whatever. But this is likely an underestimate. The common presentations, uh, are often around um, seizures, um, breathing difficulties, unexplained drowsiness, tummy upsets, blood loss very rarely. But most cases that get actually written up in the literature are where there's been clearly defined physical abuse ultimately, and the less dramatic cases that we're all much more familiar with are, are under-described, because they don't, you know, there's not much motivation to report them. This is freely available on the Guardian. It's an absolutely brilliant article um, written from the perspective of a young adult woman who looks back in retrospect at what her mother did to her when she was young. And it's her growing understanding about her recurrent presentation to doctors. Did she have a breast lump? I think is sort of how the story begins when she's a young girl. Um, and then her mum keeping her off school increasingly concerned about her physical health. And it's sort of like a letter back to, to her mum. And it's a really scary read. But uh, have a, do have a read of that. I, I think rather than talking all about you know, what these are, I do want us to explore a bit about how we feel about these cases. So what are your emotional responses to the ones you've described? What were the feelings you had? Frustration. Frustration. Frustration because? 
of your mind is if we don't get this right what is the outcome and yeah. in a smothering case well you know, it's obviously the, the worst possible could happen okay so both frustration of being able to, to not prove something that's on your mind and the worry what else there's the flip side of the worry in that you sometimes question yourself what if we're going down the wrong route yes this is totally good and what percent, does anyone know what percentage it is thought of medically unexplained symptoms and presentations end up having organic causation? Five percent. Four. So, yeah, good. Um, I, I can't hardly bear to say that because that just plants the seed, doesn't it? <laughs> when you're feeling confident, it perpetuates them. Maybe just one more trait. Go on, James. Uh, I get quite frustrated with, with how we handle these cases medically as a team. So so if a child comes in with bruising or, or a broken bone or something like that, we, we write pretty clearly in the notes, you know, suspicion of NAI. Yeah. But it's you don't get people writing in the notes as the presenting document, you know, suspicion of FII. Why don't people write that? Because of the chance that somebody might pick it up and uh, uh, and there's there's I, I suppose uh, there's the documented risk that these are the people who will escalate and okay. actually do harm to the child if they find out that they're being investigated. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's... I suppose part of that is the different approach with the parents. So we're all taught that if you've got a case of NAI, actually being open and upfront with the parents from an early stage is the right thing to do and everyone being open. But actually what, what you're told to do in FII is gather evidence and actually not be open. Yeah, but it's being open with the team. Yeah, I know. And actually, you've got, you've got a lead consultant who might be, and the you know the service consultant might be in on the game, mm. but then everybody else is left wailing around. You've got a junior doctor who's spending hours with these parents on the ward who have loads and loads of questions and mm. want repeated reviews of their patients. Mm. Um, and what else do teams do in response to these sorts of patients? they discussed is it like consultants with new teams or is it we have a team interesting cases session once a week where we discuss and often it'll, the patients will be floating around saying well I was involved it was floating around for ages and we'd all brought it up as it could it be for a long time but yeah. it nothing ever went that far down the route yeah. until it was breaking up at this yeah. point but it, yeah, um, it feels like it takes a long time to get this actually it takes a long time and they might be passed actually between multiple consultants yeah. as well yeah. Um, and one feels like they're burning out or the bridges have been burnt with this family, so could you just help? Or sometimes the families themselves just to request lots of different skills. Okay. Okay. They shop around, and yeah. Then it kind of deliberately because they know that they're starting to be suspected. Yeah. I think it's seen as, well, my impression is it's seen amongst our classes as quite a burdensome thing to, to carry, and if you're the lead consultant for this particular patient, 
to then have that, oh gosh, this has turned into an FII case, it seemed to be like, you know, you're putting a, a noose around your own neck right. and that sort of... And what you really need in every department is one pediatrician who really enjoys this work and wants to take it. Do you have those? Well, I don't know where you work, but... Because, uh, like, say in Exeter, we probably do or had in Cowan Street. These are interesting cases that, okay, you don't jump off your seat and say, hand me the file, but if there's a second opinion around a complex case, I think in Exeter it was kind of obvious who would speak to. Okay. It feels a bit uncomfortable because we're used to taking years to believing often when they say, even in a kind of safeguarding case, like you say, we're quite open with the parents and say, having a treading a communication path that isn't at all normal for what yeah. we do as pediatricians. So I think, and we've also got this real concern for the child, and we don't want them to be, so the one I saw, he was numbered into loads of different hospitals, he ended up presenting acutely with um, reported GI bleeding, and he was in a wheelchair, and he was five, and why was he in this wheelchair and he wasn't going to school and that, that yeah. feels really uncomfortable yeah um, and, and in those oh, wheelchairs are the worst aren't they because yeah. the question is where, well, where's this wheelchair this come from <laughs> yeah. the direct question of who yeah. which medical professional told yeah. you you needed to get hold yeah. of it oh well I've borrowed it from a friend you know but, and then actually it turns out that no one has really challenged that parent along the way I think it's a rotating registrar as well they can be really frustrating because you get quite embroiled into them yeah. you're about what you see on a day-to-day basis and things, but because of the drawn-out process of them, yeah. you often don't find yeah. out what the So you dip in and you dip out because you're on call. And, so there's yeah. a, you know, I can already think of three different places that actually, I don't, I don't know yeah, what I've just actually one from another yeah. one. Yeah. yeah, you know, what actually happened to them, and you know, you worry so much about these children, yeah. but you never actually get to hear the conclusion. So that's another level of frustration, and actually, I suppose... Then maybe there's a learning exercise around the next time you've got one. Make sure you see it through by asking that consultant, because hopefully there's someone taking ownership. Um, uh, yeah, um, I think there's a degree of frustration with, with tertiary and quaternary centres sometimes, because parents will eventually get a referral. Yeah. Well, to thousands, try, thousands of tertiarians, you know, finally reassure them, they come back with some, you know, and it's almost time to some something similar spots. diagnosis yeah. to, uh, and you're just like, yeah, yeah, it's only compounded. And now, and now that's ruined everything. And then the parents turn around to you and say, "I told you." I told you. So. <laughs> I told you there was we, a, we had a genetics talk percent. earlier, and you know, did theory. you cover it, Ellis? Yeah. No, no. But there's also the nursing staff element to it. I can sometimes mm. come a bit of a lynch mob. Against, against the parents yeah. or against the doctors? Um, and the yeah, yeah. 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 family yeah. Yeah. situation where nursing staff on the ward were becoming, it was kind of in the earlier days of Facebook, and some of the HCAs on the ward were becoming friends with the parents because they'd been on the ward for so long and they were asking to be friends there. Before there was a lot more guidance about social yeah. media and James and there was that kind of overlap with them where actually the parents were kind of friending these people and wanting them on board and they were almost becoming part of the reporting. Yeah, it's so interesting what, it was really what, what goes really on, yeah. yeah. And I suppose it's a, it's a duty of all of us to be mindful of when we see um, staff being drawn in to complex relationships with families. It's sort of challenging that bit. We've had, for example, recently um, on ward here at Bramble, thank you, sorry, it's a particular member of nursing staff who gets very involved in the quote CAMS patients 
and actually is good at it, likes the work, and shouldn't be discouraged in some ways, but stuff has played out mm, yeah. by virtue of the fact she's always drawn to it, and um, and she has her own reasons for, for that, her own background. Okay, so, well, there are loads, aren't there? So, irritation, we've mm, kind of touched on, but actually, they're bloody irritating, aren't they? Oh, not again, what's... What's the next raft of tests you want? Frustration, certainly. They're confusing, hence the perplexing bit, and it's fine to feel confused. Uh, we can feel pretty helpless if we don't think, well, how are we advancing this situation? Are we going to rescue this child or not? We worry. And this is the key bit. They're often projections, by, by which I mean these are probably things being experienced by the family, um, probably by the, by the parent themselves, actually. Um, but they don't have usually the emotional sophistication to understand what's what is within them that's driving it. So it gets given to us to manage these emotions too. How can you tell the projections? Um, I, I suppose you speak to a clever psychiatrist who makes this up. Well, I don't know. You can see the so you see the frustration so built in in mother. It. Yeah, so you, you might actually see some of it. Some of it playing out, um, and you know the mum says, "Well, I just what, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I can't. All the hospitals are saying I can't so have this avert. and whatever." But it can hmm? sometimes not be averted. Yeah, so we might make an we might make an interpretation, and we might say, "Well, actually, if we look at this mum's history of being abandoned when she was young, and." Uh, criticised by her father and dismissed whenever she reported tummy pains and now her child seems to have all these tummy pains uh, then we might uh, we might believe that something's going on unconsciously and being given to us I, I realise this gets a bit lie on the couch and let's have a think about it but, um, but this is why you get pressured into investigations because the rejected um, emotional state goes into you you feel anxious and helpless and whatever rightly so um, and then we get, and we often spiral off into investigations. So these are understandable emotions. I just wanted to put that front and center. And your primary thought, probably, is I'll oh, no, miss something because I'm going to look terrible, especially if I've put FII query in the notes. Um, we also worry about losing the working relationship, the rapport that we have with this family. Um, and also, we worry about someone making a complaint against us. Um, you know, you're all in training and the last thing you want at this stage is some GMC thing because mum has alleged that you did something terrible. Um, and and the same with being a consultant, I suppose, but maybe slightly slightly more protection in a way. Uh, and, the, and these take up a hell of a lot of time. And it comes to the point you think, I just wish this would go away. I'm either going to have to throw myself into weeks of report writing um, and there may not be a satisfactory outcome or maybe I can somehow get out of this. And this is all in the context, um, I suppose, is actually from an MUS type tool. But looking at somatic symptoms and, and, and complaints. And kids have tons of these sort of reported problems that might be normal physiological responses. And the more severe they get, the more um, rare they are. And somewhere in here, I suppose, we need to, to cluster FII type presentations. And these are all perplexing symptoms. Presentations on I think this is a really helpful slide because all parents or caregivers, we'd, we'd hope to sit within this kind of swinging pendulum of care and concern. On the one hand, we see kids who are being 
horribly neglected and never brought to medical attention. Just discharged a girl from the ward this morning who, one of these stories that she told Stepdad she'd taken an overdose um, on Thursday lunchtime and he brings her to A&E on Friday afternoon when she starts vomiting. Um, so, you know, he wasn't concerned enough. You might say we didn't understand the severity, but that was neglectful, wasn't it? Um, versus uh, the parent, usually the mother, who the second the child reports a bit of tummy pain, they can't contain their own emotional baggage and so they bring them to A&E. Um, and it's just helpful to remind ourselves that there are increasing degrees of concern in us as professionals um, with this swinging pendulum. And also there's a stepwise approach to this concern. So parents who are anxious and have their own health anxieties will present their kids repeatedly. Uh, then there's a the next stage in which the symptoms are um, overanalyzed or exaggerated by the parents, uh, the kind of getting towards fabrication. And then the induced illness, see that, as I say, with using the use of hands is pretty extreme. Uh, and this is how harm then can then happen to the child. And it's worth remembering that there are direct causes and indirect. Um, and look, unfortunately, this is the iatrogenic risk of the parents going to the doctor and the investigations. And then, the um, you know, suddenly we've had 10 x-rays which maybe weren't needed and now someone's put in a peg tube. But people seen kids probably in quaternary centres with tubes which have never gone in. And there's no way back. In DGHs. In DGHs as well. And actually, this, and this morning I've been over on the Halden Eating Disorders Unit and there was brief consideration revisited about um, a 16-year-old and whether we should be talking to surgeons about peg tube for a while. And uh, she has functional symptoms. So I had to nip that in the blood. So the parents' motivation need we've kind of talked about. So um, it can go down these sorts of routes. It tends to be erroneous reporting based on beliefs and anxieties and health concerns. And the key thing about all of these is what's the impact for the child? Okay, so it, it is harming them if there is a limitation to their daily life and if there is emotional abuse going on. The equifinality describes the fact that you can get to the harm from multiple components. And actually, it would be possible for a parent to report something fairly minor that a treating team go way overboard with, and then the harm really is more iatrogenic than anything else. I suppose from, from our perspective, we will come into these cases when we rotate into a, into a hospital, and maybe a, a child who's very, very well known, yeah. and, and there's, almost, there's a slow creep of impairment so that the local team may not even notice but then you come in and go well this child is definitely yeah, not a normal five-year-old that, that's, so that's really so valuable that not... so you're the fresh set of eyes and actually it's really helpful for a treating team assuming it's done uh, in a sensitive manner for there to be a critical friend in the room that says how have you got you know you're two years down the line you don't have a diagnosis this child has got uh I don't know, some procedure that's been done. Um, you know, has anyone revisited this case? Would you feel able to question the team in that way, or is that? It's tough, right, isn't it? But, but good. And I think after the event, if you did challenge it, then the treating team might say, oh, thank God you raised that, because, you know, that's been the elephant in the room. Or something. Um, okay, so... Um, 
very, very rarely is there actually an intended wish to make the child ill, uh, but there is often a relative disregard, really, quite callously for the child's health. And the child can get recruited into this narrative. Because if you, you know, you're young, you're vulnerable, you look to your parents for what the truth is in the world, and if they're telling you there's something majorly wrong with you, you believe it, of course. Same with the cycle we can get in with MUS about um, what becomes the child's belief about their illness. So we've got to be really alert to these, for, you know, from the, from the get-go. I think it's actually all right, and I would, I would encourage more clinicians to write in the notes and talk to each other about. There is a possibility this might be FII in your differentials, because you know who can take you to court over that? That's just a reasonable differential. Um, interestingly, with ICD-11, which is just about um, to come out, there is a category of bodily distress disorder. The problem is you make a new manual of something, you have 20,000 new diagnoses, but I think that's actually quite helpful because in somatoform disorders you have to be able to say definitively you have excluded physical causation, whereas not so in bodily distress disorder. That's a recognition that the symptoms reported seem to be out with what you would expect from what is observed. So I think that will be a helpful diagnosis for us to all have in our minds and you could definitely put that as your differential, couldn't you? Um, and you can also make comments in the notes about the parental response. So I don't know how often you would write in the notes about what you observe in the parent, but mum appears very anxious is a statement of your observation. Um, she is highly distressed by the idea that um, we don't have another test to perform. Um, she challenged me when I said that the child didn't need another enema. Uh, these are statements of fact that are helpful retrospectively when somebody goes back and looks through this case note. Because we've done, we've done one a couple of months ago, we did a mass referral around FII and they said, right, we need your chronologies. So one of the paediatricians went back through the hospital notes, I went through the psychiatric notes, and what you need is you know, those bits of information that people have dropped in along the way in retrospect. Uh, okay. So what do we look for in the parental management that may, may make us worried? Allowed voice should include also the parent being out of the room. You've probably all had cases where you've said, "Just like to see your teenage girl on her own." No, not really. Well, that's really weird, isn't it? Yeah. High levels of anxiety. Okay. A lot of things getting displaced. Hmm. Unexplained procedural failure, or yeah, something about this isn't the normal pattern of how we'd expect to pan out whilst on the, on the move. Yeah, okay, that's a good one actually. Um, so there might be responses to the medical staff, um, criticism, the refuting of things. The actually, I found papers online about whatever. Um, I've been on the website about mast cell activation disorder. Have you come across that? Mm -hmm. It's a new wave, isn't it? 
Hail is down Norse pots, master activation syndrome. Where does it end? It ends very challenging. We've been participating recently. Mum's big bugbear was that we couldn't refer her to a pot specialist because there was nobody who covered breast malaria who believed in pots. <laughs> we were stuck with this patient who wasn't quite old enough to be snuck into adult services. Um, but these, you know, the cardiologist all said this isn't pots, this isn't pots. Um, and she'd been just convinced by her mother that there was some medical cause and the interaction between them was really, really fascinating. Yeah. But the uh, yeah, the end result was she was stuck there for weeks. No doubt. We've got a body of medical professionals who say it exists, but you can't access those services. The, the thing is, with all of those diagnoses you just mentioned, they are all actual yeah. disorders. It's just how much. Uh, and, the, and it's particularly problematic if you have a local clinician making the diagnoses or a private paediatrician who does Skype <laughs> consultations. So um, that demand to see, I'm going to get a referral that requires a local consultant to approve it, but actually if that local consultant says no, and they just log into Skype and speak to someone privately, what can you do about it? Um, so always looking to whether the family always have a medical approach to illness rather than a psychological one is important. Um, and you get that through the exhaustive story of learning about illness narratives. Uh, that may be where my role comes in, I suppose. Um, is there evidence of low emotional intelligence or high expressed emotion in the family? What do I mean by those things? Expressed emotion, you know, just thinking, wow, this is a, this is a major drama here. What's what's playing out in this emotional relationship uh, versus the low emotional intelligence? Do, is this um, a, an adult who seems to have what we would call an emotional lexicon? Can they name what the feelings are themselves? So when you say, "Gosh, this must be really worrying for you," can they identify with that or not? No, we just need to see the right person. I'm not worried. I just need the specialist is a sense that they can't name what's going on for them. So those are red flags, I suppose. Um, so symptoms are only observed by the, the parents sometimes and only in reported con context. It's difficult to elicit those. Uh, the child doesn't actually corroborate, corroborate them when you see them um, individually or they have a slightly different sort of explanation for them. Um, there's an inexplicably poor response to whatever um, procedure or intervention you've made. And the cascade of symptoms, that one thing became, became something else, and the family are trying to make associations between those. So you can actually start the rehab approach early on, even before you've decided um, that something might be FII. So having a discussion with the parents about saying, well, you know, whatever the cause of these symptoms, what we're going, what we're going to need is the following: um, a a slow approach to returning to functioning with accepting that it's going to be distressing for the child, um, uh, you know, a, a staggered phase return to school, all those sorts of things. That's just about rehab. And you can do that even if it ends up being Crohn's disease or whatever, that's absolutely fine. 
but we need early reduction in this um, iatrogenic um, possibility, I suppose. Um, so how do we? How should we respond to these alerting signs when they're on our mind and everyone in handover is saying, oh, should we put that little club sign on there? Love the way that's done here. Really good. Safe, is this safeguarding? We've got a little symbol there. Um, so one doctor taking the lead, and as I've said, um, <coughs> I think all departments should have an identified person who's keen on this. If you're interested as trainees, maybe make that your selling point when you go to interview. <laughs> if you're really brave. Um, establish quickly, actually, what is the current state of health. That includes their mental health, um, you won't be surprised to hear me say. And how do we get the collateral histories, which include you know, the father. Often in these cases, it's just mum bringing to the appointment. Actually, the story might be quite different if you speak to grandparents or um, you know, significant others. But understanding what the actual concerns are, you know, it goes back to that ice thing at medical school, doesn't it? GPs are so good at it. What are you... So that first time you meet them in A&E and you're thinking, hmm, this is a bit fishy. What are you actually most worried about? And they might say, oh, I think it's POTS. Um, because I've read about it online. You say, well, what, what else are you worried about? Okay, well, I think it's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. You could just keep asking that question, actually. That's probably what I'd do in that city. What else? And what else is going on that might be contributing to this? What are the other stories at the minute about what's going on in life generally for you guys as a family? And actually, okay, maybe only one in 50. Uh, this might be the outcome. But what if then mum breaks down in tears and says, actually, my father's just been diagnosed with cancer? and the abusing as a child, you know. <laughs> you sometimes can hit the jackpot earlier, I think, than we imagine. Um, finding out about sibling state of health is really important, um, and that's a thing we might get, I suppose, through um, uh, speaking to, to the GP. I don't think probably we do that often enough, but the story often from the GP will be, we know this, we know this family, and actually the older sibling, who's now 20, came to us for four years as a child, and then it all went quiet. So um, some kind of sense of how illness has been managed in the rest of the family is important. question, you do get some situations where it is just the one child who is impacted. So yeah, often the youngest, mm -hmm. in my view. We've had twins. Just say we've had two cases of twins that have both got twins. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. interesting. I think another way we thought of So I would hazard a guess that most commonly if there are twins, it would be the one who was the weaker child at birth. This was the one that was always worried about or had the NICU stay or whatever. Something about this child being frail. And there's something in the story as well about what this, what this delivery was like with the mum. Did she have the experience that they were both whisked off and one was being intubated and she thought they were going to die? Because that experience doesn't leave... Um, so sometimes watchful, watchful waiting, having that conversation that actually this is perplexing, let's do some rehab approach, um, that might be enough. And clearly FII isn't in a solid state, so um, parents can extract themselves from that level of worry and dynamic relationship with the child. Um, who, whose hospitals do planned admissions for kind of MUSC's time query? Good intervention, and we had one last year where we offered that to a family who were sending thousands of 
long, long letters and they refused it, which is really interesting. They said, oh, no, we're all too unwell. Mum would call, call in from her bed uh, by a teleconference when Dad bought the girl to rheumatology outpatients. And both the parents used to be ITU specialists, so Dad had fitted a halter monitor to the girl and came with printed readouts of her tachycardic episodes. Um, anyway, when we offered a, a planned admission to do all the final tests and to get to know her a little bit better, the family said no, and it'll be too um, risky with her allergies, and also why haven't you referred us yet to Mike Jeffries around her pots? So um, <laughs> it can be an interesting piece of information if they refuse that. But it's the best way really to observe and allow this child to probably have a voice separate from the parents. I appreciate you do not have as much time as you would like, but doing a chronology with the family before you are asked to do a chronology for the courts is a really sensible thing to do. And I would chart the, um, the date and the symptoms along the top or bottom, and also what was going on in life. And if you can read that, start of secondary school, um, I don't know, you know, death of, death of somebody, autism diagnosis. Um, this gets a sense of when symptoms uh, were emerging, and is there a pattern to them as well? Sometimes symptoms always emerge around the same time of year, anniversary of a day. Yeah. Um, with the planned admissions, just to um, obviously you, you're sort of hoping that they're going to have a lead consultant by this point who's coordinating things. Do you think there's a role with getting a lead nurse as well? Um, or someone to lead the, I suppose the I think nurse, well, allied health professional side of things? Because I think that that's, that's sometimes quite a challenging aspect of the staff management to deal with. I think very good for consistency and also for observing what is going on in the team here. So we might realise a bit too late that certain nursing staff have got far too involved or whatever. And yes, I think if we... So we admitted a few weeks ago a young girl with... Um, uh, we were quite confident that she had non-epileptic um, attacks. We admitted her for a week so that she could have physio and various things. But when Dr Howes and I were arranging the admission, we made sure that the nursing staff, the lead nurses, were aware that they were coming in, um, and some boundaries around how to respond to certain things. And I was saying to the nurses, each time I saw her, please be really clear with your documentation of what did this attack look like, how long did it last, um, and that kind of thing, to have a structure. I think it's a good idea, yeah, if you can get a lead nurse, but they're much more transient, aren't they, than we are. Mm -hmm. Well, I've seen it work as having a team of nurses because these patients are quite emotionally draining on the nursing staff. Yeah, so to have the same person writing all the details might make it a bit skewed or biased, whereas if you have a team... Because what is more, you know, if there was a senior nurse who the other nurses could go and... So I suppose just letting the, the ward managers and assistants... Yeah. But both of those things, and I think if you have a tag team, you also have the opportunity for differences of opinion, which are quite healthy in these cases. Oh, actually, we've observed that with this nurse, this nursing staff, these seizures are happening every five minutes, but whereas with that matron, she's not seeing any of them. That's quite helpful information. Um, Pat, can I ask how you do that and avoid um, seeding ideas into the, the nursing staff? Because I think it can work the other way, and that they're actually, they've already made a um, preemptive kind of decision about whether the child's having epileptic form or non-epileptic 
multiple procedures. So you want to keep obviously some objectivity. Mm. I guess you just tell the senior team and therefore the juniors are more... I don't know, what do people think? So let's say you're admitting someone on Monday uh, with unusual symptoms that you want to get on top of. In your medical handover, you're going to be quite clear with everyone so people understand. But yeah, maybe... Just trying to not introduce bias because some people then end up in a bit of a witch hunt, kind of, you know, yeah. they've decided that mum's not telling the truth or whatever okay. it is that they think is going on. Yeah, and, and, and there's a risk way. that frontal seizures are missed or something because... Well, they yeah. kind of snowballs because they pass on... Yeah. N- nursing handovers, in my experience, are a little bit more subjective than. Uh, yeah, yeah, understandably, you get influenced by the person talking to you about their experience. Yeah, after. yeah. I think it's a good point. I don't know the solution, yeah. but yes. Yeah. Um, so the patients are quite difficult, kind of emotionally wise. They often have like they try and have sessions kind of once a week or something, but they've got a kind of team debrief so that everyone can try and get off their chest or the things they find really difficult about managing the patient. The nursing staff do that independently. So it's been offered to like medical ones as well, yeah. So we've had a couple of weeks has to be very difficult with a lot of things going on and they've come in and out a lot and this would be quite difficult to manage. Yeah. And all the staff have found it quite draining and kind of done to have kind of regular sessions where everyone can kind of Who chairs it? Has anyone here been to the psychosocial meeting I do once a month? So that's yeah, that's the purpose of that space. It's a bit frustrating for me because yeah, offer it every third Tuesday, nursing staff hardly ever come, and then sometimes I get feedback via the matrons or they're feeling unsupported. Could you offer them a session? Well, actually, it's always there. You get quite a good doctor turnout, but. That's exactly what that space is for. The God, this, I'm just feeling so frustrated. I'm really worried about this. I don't know why. All this mum is driving me up the wall, and I was close to shouting at her. So, yeah. We um we built into our debrief when we had a patient that was for a long time on the ward as well, and part of that was reminding, especially the nursing staff, not to discuss things in the open space that the parents might be able to. I think a lot of our discussions happen behind closed doors in the doc's office. Yeah. A lot of nursing discussions happen in the open ward. And we had to sort of put yeah. it in as a reminder at the beginning of every... Yeah, because these families, there is a yes. well open on them. Okay, just quickly, some idea of what um, systemic questioning is. So these are kind of family therapy principles which I wouldn't expect you to know loads about, but um, is understanding the multiple perspectives idea, really. So... Um, when did it start? And interesting if the child says something different uh, from the family. What was going on at the time? That's a really kind of broad question. And the parents might think that applies to, well, they were on the roundabout and then that's when they had their first seizure. Um, but actually, what was going on more, more broadly? And I think the, the, the more broad and the more gentle you ask that question, the more likely you are to get meaningful information. So... Um, Okay, so it was the start of term, was it? And uh, so they'd just been at school for a week. And was there anything else? Were there any other changes that were going on in the family at the time? The elder sibling had just left for university. I think, okay, well, that's you know, interesting information. How is everyone feeling about that? And I know you're in A&E. You've only got 10 minutes to do this clerking. <laughs> um, but these are the kind of things I would be asking here when I'm sort of in there. Um, will it get better? They'll say, well, I don't know, you're the doctor. Well, I'm interested in what you think. Is this going to get better? 
Uh, well, no, it's, it never has for me. I've, and that's why I'm in this wheelchair, because I've got chronic fatigue and now they've got chronic fatigue. Quite different, isn't it, from a... Well, I hope so, because if we just get the right things going or we understand what this is. So that's an important question. And for the child as well. So are they already dropped down the rabbit hole of I am chronically ill, this is my life, or not? Can you give the child another story about their lives? Really important about the function of the illness. So um, again, a kind of question I might ask. So actually, if your tummy pain wasn't there, what would be different in the family? Oh, would, uh, we'd be going... We'd be able to go to the park again, I'd be trampolining again, and probably I'd start visiting Dad at the weekends again, because since I've had this tummy pain, I haven't been doing that. And one we discharged from Bramble on Friday, me and Jess Pales, uh, long history of somatic complaints, separated parents, and on Friday she wouldn't leave the ward because the plan was for her to go to Dad's on Friday night, and her tummy pain was much, much worse. That's more MUSC stuff, but what changes? Uh, and, and by extension... You know, if this doesn't get better, well, what's going to happen? Oh, well, Grandma has said that if this goes on for another couple of weeks, she'll move down from the Midlands. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Is that a good idea or not? But, you know, you'll, you'll find out what's, what the knock-on effects are and what's not being thought about. So if, if you weren't worried about this tummy pain, is there anything else that would be on your mind? I'll skip that. Um... So we need to change tack. Once we're confident that this is FII, um, uh, we need to name it. Uh, we need to engage the parents in the task of understanding what, the, what needs to change, what's this all about. And we need to make sure we have professional consensus. Because if you've got one rogue clinician out there who's still offering the tests, then you're scuppered and you can't do the work you need to do. Um, how you provide this explanation to the family is really important. You probably want somebody um, from a psychological, psychiatric sort of um, setting to help you with that, I think. So as I say, these rarely end up in the kind of courts-type process, um, and really what the focus is is how can we change this, this story to get back to re rehabilitation, and that might involve additional support for, um, for parents, so the the unrecognised anxiety disorder in mother might benefit from a CBT approach and treatment. Um, alerts. So any of these people you were having your hands raised about have alerts on the system? So what did that look like, Alex? So hands up, letter. Yeah. And in these details, so the alerts are endocrinology and things like that. Remember what it would have said? Because really, you know, how do you word this so that when they come in and they've had a bleed, you don't yeah. miss it? But yeah. I think it was so it was along the lines of perplexing yeah. presentation, unexplained symptoms. Um, you know, it didn't fully word. We suspect this is fabricated illness. Please mm. do with this carefully. Mm. But it did say the named consultant, and we um, suggested good. discussion with them. Good. What systems that on? So it was through the, uh, the same as an alert letter would come up for if they have a medical issue. Right. Okay. Wow. So it's a very different system. Yeah. So we just have letters we can get our letters in it. So an alert letter comes up at the top. Yeah. yeah. The, the rest of the letters were the chronology order. Because in Bristol they couldn't have the medway. Yeah, they would have the medway and the safeguarding bit. Yeah. 
and it will access it. You have to click a button to say that you're accessing a safe button. That's really hard, isn't it? Because you think if you challenge them, you're going to rile the parent. But just something, because something's happened historically, doesn't mean. An extreme example of that uh, was about two years ago. I just started in the job. The same girl is on the Helden now. Um, and the mum would bring it to her outpatients, and in front of her, she'd say, Well, she, you're getting this all wrong. She's about to run. She's going to run from the hospital now. Watch. Of course she did. Um, but yes, this, this narrative of um, they, they won't ever let you do that, or this always yeah. happens. Um, I guess being thoughtful about how you change that up to say, well, okay, so what you're telling me is that has happened in the past. I wonder if we could try it differently in some way, or maybe that won't yeah. be the case next time. Yeah. Play therapist to come in. Or you just sort of wonder whether that's the... I guess on the same level, anxiety, you say, you know, the undiagnosed anxiety disorder, actually... I'm just thinking about patients and outpatients, where I think probably a lot of it is just that mum is very anxious and is like seeking lots of reassurance. It's not necessarily that she's inducing or fabricating anything. So it kind of merges into, you know, you've got to be really careful not to over-investigate and, you know, make sure you're not... Yeah, yeah. But, but I think that's, and that's a positive point to finish on, so it's very quick vignette. It's just a reminder that given that the vast majority of these cases aren't um, use of hands, uh, and don't have that component of um, secondary gain, for example, apart from a psychological one. This is a kind of composite story, really, but this would be a low-level, is it, is it FII, is it MUS? Um, but Emily, who's 17 and a half, is presented to A&E quite a few times in the course of three months, and no one can really explain um, the pains that are being reported. And you note in that first meeting that mum is extremely worried and it's her who's leading the narrative around, well, we haven't had an MRI yet. I've looked online and um, she needs to have a, an arthroscopy for this knee problem. And you're thinking, well, hang on, where, where is this coming from? Convinced paediatricians have missed in the past. And maybe mum has a diagnosis already in mind. She thinks the child's got um, a rheumatoid problem or, or whatever. I don't know. But this is quite a credible sort of story, isn't it? You might encounter maybe out of bounds. Um, so actually she gets submitted because you're kind of thinking, well, it's 10 at night, mum is not going to leave, she's demanding investigations, we need to kind of get on, get on top of this. But actually, you've got a matron who's saying, oh, well, you know, what are we going to do? What's our task here? Because if people aren't clear about tasks, they get anxious. Um, and they remember, well, first of all, they've observed that mum is um, 
at the desk at all times, listening into clinical consultations, um, demanding quite a lot of stuff from staff. And they're also wary that because the last time they had a patient like this, they took to their bed and they were reporting pain so much they couldn't be discharged. So everyone is edgy about this. There's a very edgy mum. And there were complaints made. And counter rejected the referral because, hey, there was no mental illness here. And there wasn't a liaison psychiatrist in the department. So, <laughs> um, so what next? Actually, somebody the next day says at handover, look, I'm going to speak to the GP because there's something about this story not matching up. And the GP says, I'm really pleased you've called because we've seen this girl for many years. This is new for her to go to A&E, but actually um, this is kind of typical for this, for this family. And she's had abdo pains and headaches, and this just seems to be the next in a series of presentations. That's good. It's reassuring in the sense that it backs up your idea that there's probably not a medical cause driving this. And actually, the GP is able to say, because there is a safeguarding component, um, that mum has got um, anxiety and depression. You get your head screening tool out and you do this systemic questioning and you get this girl on her own and you start a new line of questioning and you hear actually there's other stuff going on. She's got A-levels coming up, mum and dad are divorcing. So there's something about the anxiety of this divorce playing out. She's 17 and a half, she's due to leave home. What's mum going to do when she's got no one to care for? And that's why her caring behaviours are going right through the roof. And she's been bullied online, which she wouldn't have got to unless you kind of stepped aside and did that. So, um, actually, there's a, there's a res resolution in that Emily develops a new narrative. She makes connections between some of the bodily distress she's having. And she sort of wants to step aside from mum because she's finding this actually quite intrusive. And she's able to tell you because you've given her the space. And, and mum, eventually, through the GP's work, um, is able to engage in some talking therapies, which she was having none of before. Emily's symptoms resolved and off she goes to university. A little bit, a bit poetic ending, isn't it? But, but it's just to say that this, such things are possible in terms of resolution. And we shouldn't always assume when our heart is sinking and our anxieties are rising that we can't get beyond this. But there was an FII sort of component. Mum was driving an illness narrative that wasn't okay. And she was erroneously reporting, let's say, because the daughter's presentation wasn't in keeping with her response. Okay, thank you. That was fun. <laughs>